You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Well, it's our privilege you're here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, in the seat back in front of you should be one. That's our gift to you. Uh, we're going to be working over the next few weeks through a series on the Beatitudes. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled about it. And this first Beatitude, as you may have been able to catch from our video, is talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Um, I am absolutely thrilled. I can't say that enough. In opening this um, text, I first want to make just one quick note about the word blessed. Um, it's interesting that uh, in, in the scripture, how many people know that the Bible wasn't written in English? That's good to know. Uh, it wasn't made up by some Americans. This document that we have, this book, it's 66 books, was written primarily in Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, and New Testament. Those are the real primary languages that this was written to us. And in that, because it's translated, words overlap one another. Uh, so one of this word uh, blessed is used in Romans and in 1 Timothy actually means happy or satisfied. I want you to keep that in mind uh, just during this as it says blessed are the poor. Uh, it's saying happy or satisfied are the poor. Uh, to me that's an absolutely almost like a paradoxical statement if you will. Happy are poor. I've not met too many people that are poor, that are happy. Um, that's not, I'm not attacking the economical standpoints. It's just in our culture, satisfaction is not necessarily tied to finances. It's important, though, before we dive into this text to recognize that he's talking about poor in spirit, not poor in finances. There's nothing holy about being rich or poor. All right? So let's just cross that out and let's tackle this together. Uh, it's super, super important that as we approach the Beatitudes, we understand that these are descriptive, not prescriptive. What I mean by that is this. When Jesus says that he brought, he went up on a mountain and he called to those, his disciples, and he began to teach, we have to remember right from the beginning that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Let me say it like this. Uh, when he says, blessed are the poor, are satisfied are the poor. He's offering an alternative way of living, a new society. So when I say descriptive rather than prescriptive, it'd be like this. For instance, rich people drive Lamborghinis. Uh, musicians love to sing. Athletes lift weights. Artists paint. Just because you drive a Lamborghini doesn't make you rich. Just because you like to sing doesn't make you a musician. How many people can say yes to that? There's a guy on YouTube. I don't see you here today. I'm kidding. No, uh, there was a guy on YouTube recently who had this whole video, and he, I had this long conversation with him. He's not, not from the city here, but he had this long conversation with me telling me about how like he's going on tour and stuff. So I'm thinking, oh, this guy's really got some pipes. You know what I mean? He's got some music stuff. I put it on. It sounded like someone was strangling a cat through a blender at the same time. It was terrible. And I'm like, wow. So just because you like to sing doesn't make you a musician. Just because you drive a nice car doesn't make you rich. For instance, what I'm saying is it's not, this isn't the prescription. Jesus isn't saying this is how to be happy. He's not saying this is how to be blessed. What he's saying is that this is the alternate society. I'm going to show you the way of the blessed or, if you will, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And in essence, he's saying this is the lifestyles of those that are satisfied. Because, in fact, if we don't see that this is descriptive rather than 
prescriptive, if we don't see that God's describing a way of life, we'll actually take this very text and turn it on its head so that it's counterproductive to do what it's actually saying it can do for us. I'll explain it like this. As we go on, we'll see today in just a few moments that the point of this text is dependency on God's Spirit. It's a dependency on what Christ has accomplished, not what we've accomplished. But yet so often we take the Scripture, and maybe when you were younger you played the stepping stone game where everything was lava in a room. I'm the only kid that had fun. Okay. (laughs) If you had your childhood robbed from you, let me let you in on a little game here. Uh, We used to play this thing, though, and there were... You know, everything on the ground was lava, and you had a goal to get to. So you had to, wouldn't this, I, I don't know about you, my mind works that way, though. This church would be a blast to play that game. <laughs> Will's just been mapping out the whole time here, like, looking at, this would just be a great place to be doing that. But often what we do with the scripture is we make ourselves the hero of the Bible, and in doing so, we see the goal, which in this text would be blessed or satisfied or happy, and then through our human effort, we take, and I would suggest, manipulate the scripture to somehow be able to climb across to get to the goal. But what this text is talking about, we have to see the context of it. Jesus isn't writing to people who are unbelievers saying, this is the way to God. In fact, every other religion other than Christianity says this. Think, think about it. And I would challenge you to look at religions like this. Every other religion shows up with some sort of prophet or sage or wise man. And he shows up on the stage and says, follow me, this is the way to God. But Christianity, unlike any other religion, doesn't have a man that says, follow me, this is the way to God. Christianity has God becoming man through the person of Jesus Christ showing up and saying, I am God, come to you. That's revolutionary. Because so often, though, we look through the scripture as if it's just another religious springboard or text that's telling us, This is the way to God, rather than understanding this is God come to us, describing people who have already come to faith in the Messiah. And I could make a case for that in case you're wondering uh, in chapter or verse one, when he says he brought, he's speaking primarily to his disciples, disciples. This was not Jesus's teaching to the world. This is Jesus's teaching to those that know him and those that heard had the benefit of hearing. So today, maybe you're amongst us and you've not experienced this incredible gift of salvation in Christ. Uh, My hope is today that you can uh, see the joy that we have. It's not just happiness, but as we'll see here and over the next few weeks, we have lasting joy because of what Christ has accomplished. When we don't see that these texts and the other Beatitudes are primarily descriptive rather than prescriptive, we Remove Christ from the scripture and the gospel from the Bible. The gospel is primarily news which brings about a new way of living. It's not a way of living in hope about bringing about news. For instance, the word gospel means news, and it says this. If if someone says there's a new president, which don't worry, the election didn't pass, but if there's a new president, you don't get a vote on that. You get to vote for the president. You get to vote after he's president. It's done and finished. It's news. If there's an earthquake or a storm, that is objective historical news. You don't get a vote on that. You don't get to wake up in the morning and say, well, I don't like that he's the new president. I'm sorry you don't like it, but it's fact. It doesn't matter what side you're on. It becomes the president. It is news. Now, you have the choice to align yourself with what objectively, historically happens. 
Likewise, the gospel is not our opinion, our preference. It's the historical news that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, our reconciliation through his death and burial and resurrection. Therefore, we don't have a choice to vote on if he's king. We have a response to do with what he is king. It's, it's, it's not that I get to wake up in the morning and say, well, I don't like that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. I don't like that he's savior. You don't have a vote on that. You don't get a vote. He is So the gospel is that there is a new emperor. There is a new king, objective, historical. It happened. Now what comes from that is the way of the gospel, the life lived from the gospel. It's, in essence, you could say something like the cart before the horse. And in confusing the two, honestly, I think, causes more harm to Christianity than any foreign religion or any other false doctrine is that when people take Christ out of Christianity... We have to be ever so careful when we approach the Beatitudes that we don't see Jesus setting up for us the lava jump, how to get, how to please God and be happy, and if I can avoid this and do this, then I'll get there. It, we can't do that. We have to understand right from the beginning that God is satisfied. It's interesting, I referenced in the beginning that the word blessed also means happy or satisfied. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, and 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, he references Paul the Apostle and speaking of God says, our only sovereign blessed God. Well, that's, we have, the word blessed is kind of strange to us. When somebody sneezes, we bless you, or gesundheit, I have no clue what that means. It concerns me, but blessed, concern, okay, gesundheit, whatever it is. You, when you sneeze, though, you're blessed. But how can God be blessed? The word blessed there is meaning satisfied. And fundamental to Christian doctrine is that God is intrinsically, inerrantly, by himself, perfect and satisfied. He doesn't need us. God doesn't have a hole or a space in his lower right quadrant that needs some worship from Scranton this morning. I'm so thankful. He doesn't wake up in a bad mood and goes, man, I really could use some worship from Will this morning. If Will could just scratch my back with a little worship this morning, I'd feel a little bit better about myself. No, he is blessed and satisfied in and of himself. He's perfect. And because of that, we have an opportunity of being blessed and satisfied in him. We talk through things about satisfaction. Culture puts uh, incredible definitions to it. Interestingly enough, um, I was thinking through different cities in the United States that satisfaction is different in different places. I think we can all agree with that. Um, I'll even say it like this. Beauty, maybe you've watched the Discovery Channel. And in America, um, the kind of overwhelming uh, representation of a model is extremely skinny, um, someone that doesn't know what food is, uh, and then has a a lot of paint and other things placed upon their face. Uh, And and, and because of that, that's beauty, something that is uh, fragile. Uh, You go to Africa... Beauty is like reverse. Like they, they want to see childbearing hips and looks like you can eat a bus. I'm being honest. You put on the Discovery Channel, they're like, she's the prized possession. It's like, what? You know what I mean? Uh, I'm just being honest, but beauty beauty's different now in the same sense. Now, I'm not saying you're not beautiful. I'm just saying. 
Simply saying that, that, that culturally, we have to understand that as Americans, our cultural definition can, can uh, fog our eyes. So even think with me through different cities in America. Uh, the satisfaction in New York City is what? Money. It, it, it's money. Whereas in Los Angeles, people move to Los Angeles for what? Fame. People move to Nashville for what? Music. People move to Washington, D.C. for politics, power. People move to Boston for what? Education, Harvard. Think about it, though. It's interesting because even city-wide, there's different cultural definitions of what satisfaction looks like. But yet Jesus uses this overarching statement that says, blessed, satisfied are the poor. Satisfied are the poor. He uses something which is so interesting because in the same sense that each of those cities show satisfaction, they also provide not only satisfaction, which I think we can all say there is a level of satisfaction to money. Actually, I'll rephrase it. We can all agree that there's a dissatisfaction to not having money. Anyone agree? Uh, we, there's a satisfaction to fame, to education, to uh, music. There, there is. But equally as much, as much as that provides satisfaction, in the same sense that it hands you satisfaction, it also provides in the same moment the opportunity for curse. Money has the ability to bring about greed and power. Uh, maybe you saw the documentary Inside Job. Um, it's kind of controversial. Matt Damon does the, uh, he's not in it, but he does the commentary uh, over the financial collapse. It's really a profound documentary. I don't know how much of it's factual or not, but it's interesting as they go about uh, interviewing the Wall Street uh, executives of CEOs of companies and the Wall Street guys that are making tons of money and the greed and power that has corrupted them. Uh, There's a whole channel called TMZ. I have no clue what that stands for. I don't really care. But TMZ, basically, they sit around and try to find famous people that are, they ask them stupid questions or things that go wrong in their lives. So even though fame can bring about a level of satisfaction, it's incredible that it brings about also the moment for dissatisfaction. And Washington, D.C. can bring about incredible influence and yet incredible pride that destroys family, power. Las Vegas, people move there for gambling, for sex, for power. And in the same moment, it's called Sin City for a reason. See, each city has competing uh, definitions of satisfaction. So when we approach a scripture, it says, satisfied. We have to find out what, are, what, what is biblical satisfaction? What does this mean? Uh, there's a psychologist that basically breaks down human satisfaction to eight particular needs. I won't go through all of them, but uh, maybe you're familiar with it. Basically, he says that people need food and water, uh, shelter, you know, physiological needs. They need those things. They need to be accepted. They need to be loved. There's a whole part to it. And I think there's credence to that. But it's interesting that as much as satisfaction as we can hold on to it, doesn't it slip through our hands? Have you ever, uh, I'll say it to you like this. Don't you remember like days gone by better than the days you're living in? I'm not saying that as a depressed person. I'm really, I'm really a happy person. But isn't it amazing how nostalgia can creep in? That's not a disease, don't worry. But nostalgia can creep in. And it's almost like you remember. uh, To me, it's kind of creepy because you talk to people and it's like they just, if I could just get back to high school. After a while, they just want to be in the womb again. It's if I could just get back, if I could just. But it's amazing how nostalgia has this numbing effect on our lives. 
Or if I could just, if I could have just embraced the moment a little bit better, if I knew what I had in that moment, whether it was a relationship or a person or a job or a house or an uh, age that your children were at that particular time, whatever it was, if I could just embrace them that moment a little bit longer. John Piper, uh, pastor theologian, gives us three reasons why that temporal joy and satisfaction can't last. And if you're taking notes, I'd write these down. Number one, he says there's no worth great enough to treasure. The reason we can't be satisfied is that there's nothing in this world that's great enough to be satisfied. Number two, he says that we we lack the strength to savor or to fully enjoy the moment. It's almost like our body's capabilities only can reach so far. You know you can only hold a single emotion for about 72 hours. Uh, That means if you're extremely angry, somebody's really upset, wait about 72 hours, wait three days or so, and then go back to them. You, you, You can only hold a single emotion for so long. Number three, he says that joy comes to an end. Everything that we touch, whether we like it or not, this could be the best day ever. At the end of the day, this thing's, you only got 24 hours in a day. Joy comes to an end. It's fleeting. It satisfies, but it ends. Uh, when we hear things like that, satisfaction, joy, that we might not be able to get, there's almost a tendency in my mind, I'm almost so, so much of a realist. Uh, I'm an extremist, too. Um, not a Christian extremist, just so you but I'm an extremist in the, the way I look at things. I tend uh, to look at right at the extremes. When you hear about joy and satisfaction, when I watch the news and I, I see people you know, wrecking their lives all the time, there's almost like a tendency in me that just is like, forget it all. I don't want any of it. Or I want all of it because there's nothing left. And Paul the Apostle confronts this perspective in his letter to the Corinthians, and I'll just read to me. As we come to that fork in the road between hedonism, which is just all-out pleasuring yourself, satisfaction all the time, and asceticism, which is punishing yourself in terms of being satisfied, to me, it's incredible that the Scripture gives us a third way. In regards to hedonism as a way to satisfaction, Paul the Apostle says, that's not it. He says, if the dead are not raised, he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, he's saying that if, if we don't have hope, then you know what the logical answer is? I love that. The logical answer is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Paul the Apostle says that if Christ has not come, and if there's really not something objectively that happened, then the best thing we can do is go out and party because the Christian life demands too much of us. Of course, he says that's not the case. The resurrection has taken place. So if one wants to indulge in the opposite side, Combating asceticism, he says this, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. It's amazing. The scripture doesn't call us away from worldly pleasure. And at the same time, it doesn't call us to worldly pleasure. It creates a third way where he says again to the church at Corinth, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you? You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's really interesting. Because the Christian life, we pendulum far too often uh, through mysticism, which is interesting. I love C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says, basically, don't try to be 
uh, more supernatural than you are. Be human. In essence, he's saying just be human. God's not afraid of humans. It's amazing that as Christianity, we almost are trying to escape our humanity. Uh, We're trying to be mystical in the sense of that we come to God and we only connect with him through times of intimate worship with our eyes closed or with a song that has some swooning keys and a minor guitar chord and Kenny's belting his vocals out. And it's, I feel God in that moment. The scripture calls us beyond something of mysticism and gives us a practical way in which we worship God, in which we are satisfied by God. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know him. You know the Father and you'd know the one he's... This is eternal life. This is satisfaction. This is abundant life, that you would know God. So the question then comes... From that, how, 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 do, how do we know God? How do I know God? How am I satisfied by him? If that's why I'm here, to love God, how do I do it? Do I stay away from the things of the world as almost like an asceticist, which means punishing myself or fasting from all foods or staying away from music or staying away from uh, whatever? Do I stay away from things or do I just indulge in them, and the scripture gives us an entirely different way, and he says this, use the created order to bless the creator. I've got a huge pet peeve. Can I confess something in front of you? I hate when people sing the Star Spangled Banner. I'm just being honest with you. It drives me nuts, because it's like before a baseball game. I'm here for a baseball game. I'm here to watch two teams play in baseball, and then they sing the Star Spangled Banner, and you'd, in the middle of it, you'd, like, they changed the song. Like, there's certain things you shouldn't change. The Star Spangled Banner, like, there's not so much you can do with it. Just sing it. Let's get the game going. Next thing you know, people are doing vocal riffs. Like, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster. Just sing the Star Spangled Banner. It's not hard. Like, you don't have to rewrite it. There's certain things you don't, you don't have to change. See, there's nothing that praises an artist about worshiping the art. Imagine going to an art show with the artist standing beside the art and you come in and all you do is this is the most incredible piece of art. Let me reinterpret that for you. While the artist stands beside you and you begin to take that art piece and change it and go, well, you know what that makes me feel? That makes me feel like this one, the actual reason is 100% different than the reason that he painted it. Incredible. See, the way that we worship the creator is by glorifying him through creation. By leaning into creation, not running from it, but understanding its intent. The way that I worship God is not confined to a service, but understanding that whether I eat or drink, the scripture says, do all things to the glory of God. That's incredible. The reason that I'm here is to worship, and the way that I worship is through creation. And I either have One of two paths. I can either worship creation. I can either worship money and power and sex and influence and music and art. I can either worship that or I can run from it or I can choose to use it to glorify God to point to him. Now, I'm not talking about a religious statement at the every time when somebody cooks and you, that was a great meal. Oh, glory to God. It's incredible. Thanks so much. Awesome food. No, I'm I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about recognizing that the creator was good enough to give me taste buds to love the food that I'm going to eat later. 
And it's incredible, though, that we turn creation on its head so much to the point that I have a hard time believing that many of us woke up today thanking God for the life and health and the breath in our lungs. God, thank you that I'm breathing right here. And yet when it's taken away the moment, God, what did you do? But yet we don't realize in the moment what he's given us. Think about it. The incredible intricacies of what God has given you. Again, keep in mind as we continue, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus shares with us a parable. I think absolutely just incredibly defining what it is to be poor in spirit. In Luke chapter 18, he shares a story of two men that go to a temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, and as the two men approach the temple, the Pharisee and a tax collector, uh, which if you read the Bible, you almost think Jesus has something against the IRS. That's not the case. Uh, in, in the context of what's happening in the first century, the tax collectors were placed there as um, almost oppressive mediators over the, uh, the Israelites. It was a Roman government, and they would take a, uh, 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 somebody that was Jewish and cause them or ask them to be the tax collector, and the tax collectors would uh, extradite money. They would take extra money for themselves, so they were almost like second class or uh, pushed aside. So when Jesus is saying tax collector, what he's saying to his audience or crowd is somebody that everyone despises. So if you work for the IRS, be nice to me. Okay, Luke chapter 18. He says that the two men went to the temple to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this. This is an incredible prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man. Wouldn't you hate to hear someone pray that next to you? God, I thank you that I'm not like him. But I love you today. And as he prays, he goes on and says this. I thank you that I'm not like the other man. I'm not like extortioners or unjust or adulterers or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then it says this, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's amazing. Jesus shows us what it is to be poor in spirit, to be dependent in spirit. We have one picture. It's an amazing thing because I would suggest to you, and I imagine you would agree with me as well, that there's nothing inherently wrong with fasting or tithing or giving alms to the poor. In fact, as believers, we should do those things. All right, amen. All right, we'll try that again next week. We should do those things because we've accepted Christ and he's given us a new heart that desires to do these things. But this man begins to pray and says, I fast. I give all that I have to the poor. I tithe on everything. In essence, he's not even saying that he needs God. He's, in essence, he's praying to himself. Have you ever noticed that you've done that? I notice I do it sometimes. I start praying, and I'm actually praying to myself. I'm praying to my circumstances, praying for things. I'm praying basically for things to change in better on my behalf. It's amazing when you see that word, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, that the path of irreligion and religion are really not too far apart. It's really not that far apart. 
the, the poison of religion, it's maybe more culturally acceptable, maybe more affirmed, might give you a better life or at least keep you from uh, immediate or imminent death, I should say. Religion has about it a numbing effect which brings about something that says, I'm doing pretty good in life. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I find my justification in the things that I do. But it's amazing that you find out that religion and irreligion are both just two paths to the same destination. Self-savior. In religion, you in essence say, I am my own God. In irreligion, you say, I don't need God. It's profound, though, because both of these systems of thought are built on pride. Both are angry. Both rely on self. And both are rich in their own spirit. One of the phrases um, that I've tried to remove from my vocabulary, and I would suggest that you do as well, is this idea that when we talk about people that have not yet come to faith in Christ, we say that they're close to God. Oh, they're so close to being a Christian. What does that mean? Is it because they look like a cultural Christian? Does it look like they wear button-up shirts and you know, iron their shirts before they go out? Or they raise nice moral children? Does it mean that they're close to being a Christian? Because, no, I, I don't think biblically there's anything about being close to a Christian. What I understand biblically is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I've never been to a funeral home or a graveyard and someone goes, man, they're really close to being alive. That's like kind of being pregnant. And husbands are like, no, you're not kind of pregnant. You either are or you're not. I don't want to hear kind of. There's, there's no such thing as kind of being close to God. Well, you know, he's close to God. No, no, no. I don't, there's nothing in the scripture that shows us that. It shows that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And when you understand that, then you can begin to remove down these barriers of pride that keep us from loving both the irreligious and the religious because we realize that not only are they dif- different cousins, they're just two different masks. It's the same person. It's scary to think that we could sit in this church this morning and be our own saviors while we fast, pray, preach, worship, tithe, give of all that we have, and yet not understand what it is to be a believer. Being poor in spirit is to say this. God, you've become my justification. Let me unwrap that Bible word. It's amazing. Uh, You read books on preaching and stuff. They're like, don't use biblical words. I'm not smart enough not to, so I'm going to just have to use the Bible here this morning. That's right. Poor in spirit says, God, you're my justification. You're my justification. Not my money, not my family, not my heritage, not my success, not my unsuccess, none of that. It's amazing you don't realize really until moments where you find that you're justifying yourself. Uh, I have jury duty. Um, Not that I'm needing a jury for myself, but I'm going to serve on the jury uh, in the next month. It was interesting because I realized that it was five, uh, you have five days to turn the slip in. Um, and I went to write out the slip. And I realized it was on the fifth day that it was due. Um, it was Friday. I had to bring it on Friday. And as I wrote the date, I looked at my phone and I wrote down uh, that Thursday's date while I was filling it out on that Friday. 
And I thought, what on earth was I, why am I doing that? It's within five days. I mean, there's nothing legally wrong with what I'm doing, but something in me wanted to cover myself so that that person would know that I wasn't the last day. I know that sounds stupid. Maybe you're doing that right now or something like that. I don't know, but I know that sounds stupid, but it's interesting that you don't realize, but it's in that moment that what I say is that I care more about the way that I'm appeared than what Christ says about me. I care more about the appearance of somebody seeing the date on which I wrote a piece of paper. I know that sounds so foolish, and isn't it? When we lie, what we say is that me looking good or myself looking good in that moment is more fundamental to my identity and my personhood than what Christ has accomplished. Uh, Martin Luther incredibly says about this, that none of us break any of the other Ten Commandments until we break the first. What's the first? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God. We don't ever break any of those other commandments. We never steal. We never cheat. We never commit adultery. We never rob things. We never put down our neighbor. We never do any of those things unless we first remove our love and justification from God. And when we remove that, then we recognize, I need something. So I'm going to steal something to gain it. I'm going to uh, commit adultery. You, You never do those things until you first break the first. Being poor on spirit and I is depending on God for our justification. That whether I'm irreligious, this morning uh, in this room, all of us are from different backgrounds. Some of us are prone to incredible irreligion. Um, some of us have come through addictions and just really sick, gross stuff that nobody would uh, really want to talk about. And things maybe have been done to you that are just sick and gross and disgusting. At the same time, though, you're no farther from God than the person who is born in church or attends church and claims their justification for themselves. It's amazing, though. Something about Christian culture, we embrace people that look like us. So if somebody looks closer to Christ, then we think, oh, then they deserve something more. I've got incredible news for you this morning. Christ has become our justification. Christ has become our justification. So whether you're religious or irreligious, whether that was your natural bent before recognizing that Christ is your Savior, all of us are saved accordingly. I'm going to close with this. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be dependent upon God for our justification. All of us seek things, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. I was talking to um, a woman, she's like a spiritual mother to me, lives in Arizona, and um, has been a pastor's wife for a lot of years. She said, maybe you'll remember um, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It's incredible. She said, Jared, I had somebody trying to find out what my price was this week. So I kind of get a little concerned over the phone thinking, well, what exactly are you doing? You know what I mean? Are you selling drugs now or something? And uh, your pastor's wife, you know, she's running a, a whole ring or something like that. And, uh, and uh, no, she said to me, um, I have a book that I just finished. And I brought it to the publisher. And the publisher said, we're ready to send it out on a major market. And um, she's well known in her um, circle, definitely. And um, ready to endorse the book. And they said, all we need you to do is have 
some of your famous friends endorse the book, and then we'll do it. And she said, I don't want uh, my famous friends to endorse it. I want my daughter, because the book's about my daughter. I want her to be the forward for it. And they said, well, we're not going to pick up your book then. And she said, right then I realized that that was my piece. That was my 30 pieces of silver. That was, that was the price tag that I had. It wasn't hard for her just to include her daughter in the forewords and get the major book deal, but what she realized right then was that she had, a, she had an option. Her price tag, she could either have a, a book deal and get a bunch of money from it, but she had to go against what she knew and what she already said was the point of it. See, all of us have these idol-making factories in our hearts. All of us have these price tags that if we don't understand, uncover, and give them to Christ, they will come up. And I, I mean, you think, no, not me. And two things for that. One Galatians says, you who are spiritual, take heed when you restore someone. Restore them gently, lest you fall into the same sin. And number two, if Jesus could be betrayed in the flesh by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, how much more can we? I'm not going to say I'm more spiritual than Judas. I'm not going to name my child Judas either, but I'm not going to say I'm more spiritual than him. I would suggest you don't name him Judas either. I have a feeling that would be tough in school. Our justification is when we recognize that fundamental to who I am is Christ. Closing with this, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you have been a Christian for any time, or maybe you're discovering it, I've got incredible news for you. Uh, one, we don't all wear overalls uh, and pray hard t-shirts, so that's good news for you. And also, Christianity calls us to a very difficult life. It calls us to a standard. The scripture calls us a peculiar people. To be a Christian, you stick out. To be a Christian, it's it's... Our culture wants to blend everything to be a Christian. Again, I'm not saying we're the guys holding the signs. I'm just simply saying that living as a Christian, it goes counter to our culture. We hear words like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can you say satisfied? Maybe you're just listening to this, and I hopefully you're thinking critically through it. Not critically of it, but critically through it. And you're sitting there going, Jared, that, that wasn't very convincing this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's nothing really exciting about saying that you have to be dependent in spirit upon God. It was kind of cool what you said about worshiping you know, God through the stuff I enjoy. And I need to know that because I've been doing it for myself. But realistically, there's nothing really that exciting about being poor in spirit. How can I say satisfied? I feel like i got to grunt my teeth and go, I'm satisfied in God this morning. Blessed are the poor. I love this. How, how can we say that? Do you know why? Because the second part of the verse. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why are they satisfied? Again, this isn't stepping stones how to get there. This is the lifestyle. This is an alternate society that we're going to see through the next few weeks that God is showing that this is what Christian culture looks like. This is what Christianity is. How can we say that you're satisfied those that are dependent on spirit? Because they get the kingdom of heaven. Tim Keller shares a story about two people working in a factory. 
They're both making uh, whatchamacallits. The candy bar, I guess, we'll use for this analogy. One guy making the whatchamacallit is given $7 an hour. Guy beside him making the whatchamacallit right now is making $7 an hour as well, but is guaranteed at the end of this year will be a multimillionaire for the rest of his life. Who comes into work with more joy? Think about it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs of the kingdom. Why are we happy? Why are we satisfied that we're dependent on God, choosing God? Because when, when life all around us looks the same so often to people that don't trust in Christ, how can I say I'm satisfied when I'm making the same whatchamacallit as the guy beside me is making the same whatchamacallit? He's making seven bucks, I'm making seven bucks. He just got eight bucks, and I'm making seven bucks. How can I be satisfied when now he's making $70, making the same whatchamacallit as I am? Because the joy of tomorrow bursts into today. When I understand that the dependent on the Spirit, those that are poor in spirit, dependent on what Christ has done, think with me. I hope that makes sense that how can I say I'm satisfied? Because I recognize that this is not it. Jared Ruddy's greatest day is not right now. Thank God. I'm having a good time, but I'm so thankful this isn't, this isn't my high note. This isn't the best. I've got something beyond here. Something bigger, something greater. And it's so good, it's so great that it changes the way that I live now. Psalm 16:11 says, in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why do we trust in God? Because his joy is full and his joy is forever. Right now, your bodies are decaying as we speak, even though I'm sure you're going to sit there and go, well, my body's renewed with you know, cells. You, your body, yeah, it dies and exchanges. We're going to die. That's, sorry, I shouldn't have ended on that note. Amen. All right, no. No, 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 we're, we're going to die. I'm going to be dead. I'm going to die. And this body that you see and my wife that loves me, someday I pray it's longer so I can glorify God more now than ever. I'm going to die. Dead. It's just like everybody else that said they would never die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm not saying that as a confession today. I'm, so if anything happens, that was not premeditated. I'm just saying simply, I'm going to die. This human body is so frail. It's so frail. His joy is full. His joy is forever. I know I'm weird. Sometimes I lay in bed at night and I think about what it's going to be like when I don't have this physical body in my way anymore and I get to glorify God. Because how many people know that's the hope of Christianity is that we're not just getting to heaven, but God is making all things new. He's going to restore this earth according to Revelation 21. He's going to make this thing new. It's going to be restored. It's going to be perfect. And I'm going to have a resurrected body that's not just going to look like the same one, even though you think some of you are like, he's so gorgeous now. He already has his resurrected body. I know you're like, does it get any better? I got incredible news. It does. If you think, wow, he's so gorgeous. How does it get? I don't know, but it happens. I meditate on that often. My wife doesn't agree, but that's okay. I'm still trying to encourage her. Babe, just think, someday it's going to be even better. There are times, though, not that I think about that, um, 
But I think about what it means when God restores this all, the whole earth. And I, I, can't even, I can't even get my mind around it. I can't even think about a day when disease and sickness is wiped out. And death is no more. Wow. And racism and striving and protecting myself, writing those numbers, feeling that thing inside me, trying to change the numbers so I look a little bit better. I can't wait. I can't wait to realize that I don't have to justify myself anymore. I don't have to get up in front of people and think, wow, Jared did good today, or Jared didn't do good today, or wow, how do I do it? my money or look at my car or look at my house or look at my material possessions or look at my family or look that I'm a little bit ahead of my friends. I can't wait. Blessed are the poor. Why? Not because of now. Yeah, there's, a, there's an element of it that I get now, but blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. This morning, I call on you now to make a confession of Christ. To make a confession of Christ to realize that this isn't it. If you don't know Christ, my hope is that you could experience with us, those that do know Christ, joy that's full and forever. That's my hope. My hope is that you could know joy full and forever. And it's very simple what that takes place, how that happens. How do we have it? By becoming poor in spirit, by simply saying, God, I trust in you for my justification. I'm not going to defend myself. I don't care if I'm religious or irreligious. The gospel is the third way. God has come to me, and I trust in you wholeheartedly. This morning, if you don't know Christ as your justification, please join with us in the kingdom of God. Join with us when this thing is restored and made new. When this world is perfect, all of the aches that you have, all the desires you long for, all the movies you watch, you cross your fingers and hope for a good ending. You know that wasn't just placed there. You ever watch Lord of the Rings or anything like that and you just want it to end good or Chronicles of Narnia or any other movie and you, there's something in you that even though you know the ending, you have to see the ending, right? You sit there and you go, no one walks out and goes, I already know what's going to happen. Guy's going to get the girl. World's going to be saved. The end. No one walks out halfway. We sit there in anticipation. Why? Because there's something in us that knows this world's broken that's longing for it to be made new. Christ has already made it new. And through his resurrection, we can experience it in the now, not just in the then. I can be renewed now. What incredible news. If I could have the worship team come forward, I just want to pray, respond to God through our worship this morning. Father, thank you. You said blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are dependent. If we could just sing the I want to know you this morning. Blessed are the poor. Satisfied are the poor. Lord, thank you that this is not Jared Ruddy's best day. And if it was, it would end 24 hours from now. God, I can only stay awake so long without falling asleep. My body only has so many capabilities of experiencing joy. Thank you. Thank you, though, that there's a day coming for those that are dependent in spirit that theirs is the kingdom. We love you. We need you. We trust you this morning, Lord. Lord, whether we've fasted and prayed or whether we've said that you don't exist or video on YouTube that blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Thank you that that doesn't really mean anything. Whether I'm religious or irreligious, I have an opportunity. 
I can't run to you fast enough or far away from you. In the person of Christ, you're near. I want to encourage someone. I feel quickened by the Lord this morning. Uh, if there's someone here that's struggling with that, that idea of like, I blasphemy the Holy Spirit. I, I have the unforgivable sin. Let me encourage you. The unforgivable sin is your heart is so hardened that you won't ask for forgiveness. That has nothing to do with you making a YouTube video or saying a stupid remark your child. Uh, that has to do with our hearts are so hardened. I want to encourage you this morning. I uh, feel quickened by the Holy Spirit to say that in case someone is here that, that did that. Let's stand together and worship him just for a few moments.